Well, good morning. Uh, welcome to this week's installment of The Masked Pastor. And um, also, got to remember how to turn this on. There we go. Beep. And also, I wish you guys a happy Ben Franklin Day. Uh, ben Franklin was born in 1706 on this day, so you'll be happy to know that. I am wearing bifocals in celebration. So, uh, also because I'm getting really old. Okay, so... Um, I have to start this somehow. Yep, there we go. All right, now my official sermon. So as you saw with Betsy's kids' sermon, we're going to be talking about Peter and Cornelius today. And um, this week, as the last time I spoke, I'm going to start with confession. One of my more sinful tendencies I struggle with sometimes is to be a bit of a judgmental uh, donkey. We're going to go with donkey because we're a mixed company. I'll make a substitution. And sometimes in my judgmental donkeytude, I make completely unfair snap judgments about people. Um, and this can be based on how you dress. This can be based on your socioeconomic status, your education level. Um, honestly, sometimes your race. Um, you know, it's painful to admit, but that gets me. Um, and, you know, I think especially recently we do this on the basis of our politics. I mean, I think we saw some very ugly examples of that um, and have in the last week and last weeks and months. Um, but you see, I have what are called preconceived notions. I have uh, these preconceived notions about different groups of people. And these impact how I interact and my, how I might interact with you, um, whether I am... Uh, whether how willing I am to invite you over to my house, at least back in the days when you can invite people over to your house. Hopefully we'll be back there someday. Um, if I'm going to try really hard to be your friend, or if I'm just going to kind of, you know, shrug you off and send you on your way. And these notions are sinful. They're wrong. Um, they are not in line with God's word. And sometimes God needs to knock them out of me. And, you know, really because in doing so, I've placed myself on a judgment seat. I've decided who is worthy, who is not. I decide sometimes who gets to hear the gospel and who doesn't, who is worthy of salvation. And that, so hold on to that idea, hold on to that notion of preconceived notions. <laughs> um, we're going to come back to it later. So also the last time I spoke before Advent, uh, when we looked at Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, we talked about how the gospel, in Acts, you see this outward movement of the gospel. It begins in Jerusalem at Pentecost among the Jews. It spreads among the Jews. And then we see that Philip the Evangelist and then Peter and John take it to, um, take it to the Samaritans, who are the kind of half-Jews, if you remember, from the half-tribes of uh, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were the sons of Joseph. Um, and then we saw Philip speak to the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch, who, if not ethnically a Jew, um, he was pretty devoted to the actual Jewish faith, enough that he would travel a thousand miles um, to go worship at the temple. So more recently, we saw how the Lord took Saul, a Pharisee, and the very man who was driving the persecution of the church, which ultimately uh, drove the spread of this gospel. I think I skipped that part. Um, and actually opened Saul's eyes to a more complete understanding of what God was working on. You know, Saul was a very uh, devoted Jewish person, a Pharisee, um, but then he didn't have a full picture of what God was doing. But then God enlightened him, so to speak, very strongly uh, to what was going on. Um, so today we're going to look at the next outward step of the gospel. And this is a big one. This is where it, it steps from, you know, we had uh, Jerusalem, then we have Judea, then we have Samaria. And so now we're going to take a bigger leap where we take the first cross the threshold for the first time in the book, 
where this moves out into the Gentiles. And as, as Betsy says, uh, this is calls for us to rejoice because quite frankly, we're probably all, unless there's someone here who is ethnically Jewish, we're all Gentiles. And so without this, we'd be in a lot of trouble. So uh, today we're going to cover basically all of Acts 10, and I need to get going because there's a lot to cover. So we're going to start uh, in Acts 10, I'll start with verses 1 through 8, and this is the vision that he gives to a man uh, named Cornelius. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Okay, so here we have Cornelius. Cornelius is a Roman soldier. Um, so he's in command. Uh, a centurion was in command of a group of about 80 men called a century. And they're part of a larger group called a cohort, which was about um, six centuries or 480 men. Now, what I don't understand is why a century is not 100 people. Um, apparently, the Roman army wasn't metric, and I don't think they were. I think Romans can be to blame for why we have the mile. And uh, so, uh, but that's a side note. But one note here is that you don't get more Gentile than this guy. He is actually a member of the occupying force. He is a member of who the Jews thought the Messiah would free themselves from. But yet, he was devout. He was not Jewish per se, but he believed in the one God. He believed in the God of Israel. And um, Luke, the author of the book of Acts, points this out uh, in three aspects. And these are just good things to look at when you talk about people of faith. One, he feared God. Second, he gave generously to the poor. And third, he prayed continually. And these are just very three important things in Luke's mind that are emblematic of someone who is a person of faith. And as seems to be happening a lot in these parts at the time, he's visited by an angel. And I find it incredibly interesting that the angel tells him, your prayers and alms have risen, ascended as a memorial before God. Now, he's not a Christian yet. Um, and so he's not heard the gospel. Um, but his prayers and the outpouring of his faith in God uh, through his generosity of the poor, they're still noticed to God or by noticed by God. Paul talks about this actually a little later in Romans 2, 14. He said, for Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. So because of this man's faith, God chooses him for mission. He is to send for a man named Simon, who is called Peter, who is staying with another Simon, a tanner, and Joppa. And it's a good thing Simon Peter is called Peter because other be two Simons, the wrong Simon might go to Cornelius. It'd be a mess. But fortunately, he goes and he gets the right one. So Cornelius sends two servants and a devout soldier to summon Peter. And yes, that Peter, the stood up at Pentecost Peter, the feed my sheep Peter, Saint Peter, the Simon Peter. So now we come to Peter's vision in verses 9 through 16. And it says, the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. 
and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened up and something like a sheet descending and being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common and unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, as an aside, I just got to put a plug in here for the Old Testament. If you have the mind that the New Testament is all that is important, and that the reading and study of the Old Testament is not important, let me unavail you of that opinion right now. The Old Testament is all over this passage, and you can't understand this vision without it. So just putting a plug in for the Old Testament, I'll get back to what I'm supposed to be doing today. Now, Peter, of course, and all the disciples, not to mention Jesus himself, they were Jewish. They were the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They have been God's chosen people for literally thousands of years at this point. And their customs and practices served as an outward sign of their status as such. A big part of that was their dietary laws. And what Peter sees in this vision is a direct reference to the dietary practices commanded by God. And so to run through some of those briefly, Leviticus 11.3, you can only eat animals that have a completely split hoof and that choose the cud. For those of you into Boolean logic, that is not an or statement. That is an and. You can't have just one. You have to have both. Leviticus 11, 13 to 9, and Deuteronomy 14, 12 to 18, uh, lists of birds that are detestable that you shouldn't eat. Leviticus 11, 9 to 12, and Deuteronomy 14, 9 to 10, only eat fish with scales and fins. So I think lobster's out, but that's not a great loss. And then Leviticus 11, 20 to 24, and Leviticus 11, 30, insects that you can't eat. And I personally still ascribe to that particular practice, not out of any religious belief. But So you get the picture. These dietary restrictions were a huge part of how the Jewish people set themselves apart from the surrounding nations, how they were identified. These restrictions actually prevented Jews from having table fellowship, from breaking bread with Gentiles, because they feared they would be served something that would be, make them unclean. And as fact, as we'll hear a little bit later in what Peter says in this passage, Oftentimes, Jews went so far as to not even enter the house of a Gentile for fear that something would happen in that house that would make them unclean. So here's the sheet, lower before Peter. It's filled with all these creatures. And I actually love the coloring sheet. You should look at that on your table if you haven't seen it for those of you here. Because it's just really, really full of animals. I just think the pile of animals is pretty funny. Um, So uh, this is filled with creatures that uh, Peter has been told his entire life not to eat. In fact, he'd probably been told not to even touch them should they make him unclean. And now a voice from heaven is telling him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And what is Peter's reaction? By no means, Lord, I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Peter is mortified. This can't possibly be what God is asking me to do. And you also see this, actually, if you remember Peter's response, when Jesus tries to wash his feet at the Last Supper, what does he say to Jesus? Right. By no means. He's mortified then. He exclaims, not just my feet, Lord, but my hands and my head as well. You see, Peter has preconceived notions that God needs to knock out of his head. It was not that Peter wasn't earnest in his faith, but just as perhaps Peter had not grasped at the Last Supper that the Messiah had come not to be served, but to serve, he also did not yet fully grasp the full extent of the gospel, the utter completeness of God's plan of salvation. Because up to this time, the gospel had only gone out to the Jewish people and to the Samaritans, which, while previously detested by D, 
detested by the Jewish people, were at least a little Jewish, and one Ethiopian who had traveled a thousand miles to worship at the temple. So maybe Peter could get his head around that, but I think maybe the notion that Israel had been waiting so long for, well, let's back up a little bit. So the nation of Israel had been waiting a long time for deliverance from their oppressors. So I think maybe the notion that the oppressors would be included in that plan of salvation was just not something that Peter had quite gotten his head around yet. And sorry, I guess I'm kind of bashing on Peter. I don't really mean to, but yeah, I'm going to keep doing it. No, hopefully not. Let's just say, another aside, as far as the veracity of scripture, one thing I think it testifies to the veracity of scripture, the truthfulness of scripture, is the disciples don't always come off looking good. And I think that really just points to the honesty of the gospels. Because if you're going to make this stuff up, you think you'd make yourself look a little better at parts. So God gives Peter this vision, knowing it is what Peter needs at the moment. But Peter doesn't quite get it yet. And it says that Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean. But while he's perplexed, the men sent from Cornelius arrive. And the Holy Spirit tells Peter, again directly, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Again, God is very direct, because he knows right now this is what Peter needs. So Peter goes down to the men, who he would have recognized as being Gentile, and asks the reason for them coming. They tell him about their master, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. And light bulb. Here's the vi- here the vision now makes sense. It really isn't about food. This is about God making the Gentiles clean. And I think verse 23 is significant because it says, so he, Peter, invited them in to be his guests. And something shifts in Peter immediately. Because what does he do? He invites them to stay as his guests. Something that probably would have been unthinkable to Peter like five minutes before maybe. And so they stay with Peter that night because there's probably too far of a journey to undertake at that point of the day. And so then the next morning, Peter goes with the men, along with some of Peter's associates, and they go to Caesarea the next day. By the way, Caesarea is actually uh, one of the seats of government at the time in the Roman Empire. And so it is a very, very Gentile city. In the meantime, uh, Cornelius has gathered his family and close friends to hear what Peter has to say. Now, I picture this as Cornelius really having packed out his house. I mean, just people everywhere, snacks, drinks, hors d'oeuvres, maybe little cocktail weenies. But, you know, I guess that's what you do when an angel of the Lord tells you to have someone come speak. You call all your family and friends because you're really excited about what you have to hear. And I, um, and I love how Peter starts out his speech. So he, he comes to me and says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit with anyone of another nation. So I picture that like me coming to your house and saying, well, you know, as a pastor elder, I, uh, you know, I don't think I'd really be caught dead here normally. And, you know, that just doesn't seem like the way to, to warm up the room. Um, but Peter continues on. But God has shown me that I should not call any person uncommon or unclean. Proof, again, that Peter now understands this vision was not about food. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. So Cornelius recounts his vision. We won't... Uh, Uh, go over it again. And sending for Peter, uh, he invites Peter to speak, saying in verse 33, now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. 
So again, like in the case of the Ethiopian eunuch, we see people who have been prepared in advance by God to hear the gospel. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now think back to early in this passage, when the angel tells Cornelius his prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Because Cornelius is, quote-unquote, um, hang on, okay, sorry. Because Cornelius is, quote-unquote, uh, not saved yet, because he won't be saved until several verses from now. He hasn't even heard the full gospel yet, but here he is being a law unto himself. And Peter tells the story. So starting in verse 36. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. Note that apparently news did travel around the region because they've already heard of these goings-ons. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him appear, not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And then Peter shared the four spiritual laws and didn't alter call, and people came forward. Okay, just kidding. He didn't. Um, not, it's probably should not be so flippant. Uh, in fact, I don't even think he got to the end of his spiel because it says in verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among them, from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. So we have here a localized holy disruption that breaks out. In fact, this is sometimes referred to as the Pentecost for the Gentiles. Um, so here, uh, Peter and his friends witness the Holy Spirit being poured out on the unclean, the uncircumcised, the filthy, dirty, detestable Gentiles. Boom, mind blown, paradigm shifted, preconceived notions unconceived. This gospel, the ultimate work of God, is proving bigger than Peter, St. Peter, one of the 12, one of the three disciples within the 12 who were closest to Jesus, ever imagined. And it says that Peter declared, can't anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Then they asked him to remain with him for some days. Now, don't miss that last sentence. They asked him to remain for some days. And I would like to think he did. Uh, the video said he did. Um, and I, I don't think it actually says either way, but I think that you're left to imply that he did at least. And up in verse 28, Peter had said, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. And now he's going to stay with these people. There's now fellowship, brotherhood, where there was none before because of what Jesus Christ has done. Because the veil was torn, there's no longer separation of men from God, and there no longer is separation of men from one another. So, in light of this, first, rejoice. Because guess what? And I think I can say this of the vast majority of us. You are 
Gentile. You're common, unclean. But now you who are far off have been brought near through the blood of Jesus Christ. You who were common and unclean are now uncommon and clean. Now, second, think of Peter, who even after personally witnessing the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who was among the first to receive the Holy Spirit, who was personally asked by the resurrected Christ to feed my sheep, had his own preconceived notions about who the gospel was for, who could be in and who could be out. And notice that those preconceived notions were so strong, God knew he had to send him a specific vision to shake him out of it. And also notice that even when he was still amazed, that he was still, even after the vision, amazed when the Holy Spirit was given to the unclean, the Gentiles. Now think of your preconceived notions, the people you see as unclean. I know you have them. I have them. Some in my own family. These people about, her, about whom you think, surely God can't save them. They're just too far gone, or they're just too far unlike me. And I place myself on the seat of judgment about who will hear the good news and who won't. Or from another angle, maybe for similar reasons, especially cross-cultural reasons, at least for me sometimes, you don't sit in judgment, you sit in fear. Lord, I don't know how to relate to them. Surely they must think me odd or think me, or they must despise me. But now think again how God brought you near, how we see in the book of Acts, the Gospels march outward, how we see people like Saul and Peter who keep having their understanding of God expanded and deepened, and take comfort and confidence that the God you serve, the God of the universe, shows no partiality. As Paul would later write in Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone for belief, to the Jew first but also to the Greek or the Gentile. Or in Galatians, there's now neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And that that person you see as different, who you look upon with perhaps judgment or fear, is not unlike you as an image bearer of God with a need for salvation, for hope, for love, and ultimately for Jesus. And it is just... And it just might be that God is calling them to receive the Spirit, and he just might be calling you to be a part of it, to be a witness to it, and to be amazed. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you have have planned your salvation from the beginning to be for all peoples. You did truly, truly, truly mean through Abraham that he would be a blessing to all people and all nations. And we just pray that as your faithful servants here at Missio Dei, that we would be... um, willing to get rid of our notions of who might be in or out, to get rid of our preconceived notions about different classes, races, and political uh, categories of people, um, but that we would, in boldness, uh, carry forward your gospel to all. Amen. Those who are uh, taking communion. So I don't know if uh, maybe Sean and Doug can help Betsy hand out the cups, please. And if those of you are joining on Zoom, feel free to grab your own elements if you have some. The uh, LT members who are handing out elements are going to sanitize their hands before they bring them around. Just let them know how many cups you need at your table. And uh, as usual, please wait. Wait until everyone has a cup before we... So we can take it together. I think it's important to all take it at the same time. I actually wanted to... This text came to mind while Rob was speaking. And uh, while we're Getting the elements ready, I want to encourage us to meditate on this reality of um, those who are far away being brought near. 
I just thought of Ephesians chapter 2. Just listen to these words as you receive the as you receive the cup, and after I read them, we'll we'll take the cup together. Remember that once you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus. You who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we all have access to the Father by one spirit. And that's what we are reminded of this morning as we take the the cup and the wafer, which point to the broken body and spilled blood of Christ. So I invite you now to open your cup, Uh, take the wafer, which points to his body, take the cup, which points to his blood, which as we are reminded of this morning, is what makes us one, is what brings us near. Um, Take it in the spirit of thankfulness and awe and reverence of that reality this morning. In, In a time and in a world that is full of so much splits and intent, Agonism and division. We are brought near. Pray with me and then we'll um, go to our announcements and benediction. Lord, we thank you for this reality. Thank you for this, as Rob pointed us to, this profound holy disruption that brought in the Gentiles and that we sit in this room now very much because of that reality. Lord, I pray that we would be agents of uh, ambassadors of peace just as Peter was, even if we don't understand, just like Peter did, didn't understand. Even if we don't understand what's you're calling us to, even if we don't understand the situations we always find ourselves in, I I pray we'd be faithful to the powerful new creation reality that you're bringing us all towards in a time of so much division and anger and anxiety. um, May we be agents like Christ of healing and may we do it only through the strength that you provide to us because of him, because of what you've accomplished through him. We pray this one family this morning. Amen.